A new monument is up near the National Mall in honor of a Kansan, former President Dwight D. Eisenhower. You may know about Eisenhower's order to invade France in 1944, what became D-Day, but did you know that he influenced school desegregation and even the way we take road trips? You're used to seeing us on the evening news. This conversation's different. I'm Haley Harrison, and this is KNBC 9 Storytellers. It's a four-acre park near the U.S. Capitol. It's designed by Frank Gehry, the man who designed the Guggenheim in Spain and Disney Concert Hall in L.A. Congress commissioned the memorial in 1999. This week, Don Hammett, the director of the Eisenhower Presidential Library and Museum in Abilene, Kansas, joins us. Don, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Delighted to be here. Okay, first of all, I just kind of want to know, 2020 has been such a wild year for so many people. How's it going up there in Abilene? Well, uh, Abilene is a rural community, so we have, a, we have a small population, so our COVID numbers are relatively low compared to the rest of the nation, and that's a good thing. Um, my, my museum and library is part of the National Archives and Records Administration, um, so as a federal agency, uh, we were able to telework almost immediately, and we have been in a maximum telework capacity since March. Wow. So the, the, the library and, uh, and museum is closed right now. That's correct. The library and museum are closed to the public. Uh, we are in phase one of a three-phased approach to return to normal operations. Um, I'm hopeful that we can uh, move forward as long as our numbers stay low and uh, we get the, the green light from D.C. Okay, so what involvement, if any, uh, did the library and museum have in the creation of this Eisenhower Memorial that's being dedicated in D.C.? Sure. So first, I think it's important to point out that this has been in the planning stage for a very long time. Um, the commission was uh, the commission was appointed in uh, uh, 1999. So they have been working on this for quite some time. The commission and the architect, Frank Gehry, came to the Eisenhower Presidential Library um, at the beginning stages of their planning to look at our images in the collection to get a sense of what Abilene was like when Eisenhower lived here. Um, and they used a lot of our holdings for inspirational purposes to begin with. Um, and frankly, it's nice to look at their, their plans and their, their statues and recognize where it came from in the library. So there's images that, that the library had pulled for Frank Gehry uh, and the others who were involved in, in the creation of this uh, that you now see reflected in the finished product. I do. I do. The, of course, the image of General Eisenhower talking to the 101st Airborne um, prior to the D-Day invasion. Um, the, the image of Eisenhower as a young boy, those are all things that we have here. Wow. Can, have you, I, I know that you've seen this. Uh, have you seen the memorial in person yet? I was able to look through the fence quite a long time ago. Um, so it, it's come quite a ways since I last laid eyes on it. Yeah. Uh, can you briefly sort of give our listeners, people who haven't seen images of it, can you give them a sense of, of what this monument is like and how does it differ from maybe other monuments in D.C.? It's kind of down there in the National Mall area. So this is um, on a little corner. It's actually a large corner near the Department of Education. Um, and the thing that's important is that this was chosen because it is near uh, buildings that house agencies that are associated with Eisenhower. So the Voices, Voice of America is right there, uh, Department of Education, 
uh, Department of Health and um, House, HHS. Um, and um, it's lovely. It's, to me, it's thoughtfully placed in this location. And then uh, the architect really, Frank Gehry, really wove Eisenhower's experiences into this memorial to lead us to him being the president of the United States. Isn't it? It's like four acres. It's kind of a sprawling sort of monument. It's four acres. It's quite large. Um, uh, but they were able to really tie in his military career um, to the presidency, what happened in his administration. It, it's, it's incredibly thoughtful. I had um, heard an interview with Eisenhower's granddaughter, Susan Eisenhower, in which she said, her grandfather had said, don't put me on a horse. <laughs> I just saw that as well. It sounds just like him. <laughs> so Eisenhower passed in 1969. So he must have had the foresight to recognize that he would be memorialized in this kind of way at some point in the future. So it's sort of a dichotomy to me as I look at this man or I think about this man. It's sort of a dichotomy. He was an incredibly humble person, um, but he knew what he did in the world. He knew his place in history. Did he keep journals? He kept some journal. He, it was more like a day planner, but yeah. Yeah. Um, do we know at all how Eisenhower felt about monuments and memorials? I ask because we're kind of in this period in, in American history right now where people are reevaluating monuments uh, to historic figures and realizing that these were people, imperfect people who perhaps did great things. Um, and, and what does that mean and how do we want to memorialize people? Are there any records about that from Eisenhower? So I don't know about him talking about memorials in particular. He was very interested in reading history texts, history books, um, and he felt very strongly that we needed to know what our past was um, in an effort to help us recognize what the present is and the future can be. Um, so I, he didn't actually talk about memorials, but I do know that he was very interested in, in, and thought it very important that we all understood our history sort of a student of history himself. He was an incredible student of history, yes. He devoured history books as a child. His mother actually had to take his books away from him so he would do his chores. <laughs> Tell me more about his, uh, his upbringing in Abilene and how that shaped the man uh, who became one of, the, one of the greatest figures of the uh, 20th century. Sure, so he was um, a, a child of a boy, it was a boy family. Uh, they had seven boys, six of them lived to adulthood, seven boys. Um, uh, they had the regular childhood of, you know, fights and arguments and sports and those sorts of things that we all think about. Um, they had a, a small family farm. Uh, so the boys were able to, uh, if there was any extras within the family farm, the boys could sell them with, uh, in the town of Abilene. And they could use that money for their, you know, their, the things that they wanted to buy. And most of it was sports equipment. Um, Ike thought that he was going to be a professional baseball player uh, when he grew up. He was very good at sports, very good at sports. Um, and so that was his dream to be a professional baseball player. Uh, the family was not incredibly wealthy, but education was very, very important to each of them. So the boys sort of took turns to going to college and paying for each other to go to college. 
Um, and when Eisenhower found out that the military academies were um, a free opportunity, you know, you had to work for it. It wasn't available to everyone. Uh, but he recognized this as a way for him to get a, a college education and not have the financial burden on him or his family. Wow. So frankly, he, he applied to uh, the Naval Academy. He wanted to go to Annapolis first, but he was going to be too old when he graduated. So he was not allowed entry. So he um, did uh, accept uh, the application or the, uh, the, the, What's the word I'm looking for? He accepted an appointment to um, West Point instead. And so I like to think about what would have happened if he had gone to the Naval Academy instead of the, the military academy. Isn't that amazing how just one seemingly insignificant change of events changes the course of human history? Absolutely. Like he was, he was, when we're talking about the, the invasion of Normandy and the allied forces in Europe, he was, the, to us, the perfect person for that job. And if he had gone to the Naval Academy instead, there, there would have been another person in that position. Yeah, and it could have ended very differently. Um, okay, so I did wanna ask about Didi. Obviously, this is what most people know uh, Eisenhower for, it is, is his role in D-Day and, and execution of D-Day. Can you give us just the brief <laughs> synopsis of, of, of how he was so integral in, in that event and, and how that changed the course of the war? So from my point of view, he had two incredibly important pieces of the puzzle, if you will. He was an incredible military strategist, number one. And number two, he had this incredible skill of um, incorporating others into um, a, a, a plan or a line of thought. So he was able to work with all of the other allies to create this unified plan. Um, and without his military strategy um, and without that characteristic of being able to, to have everyone collaborate, um, I think that those are the two main components of his personal characteristic that made that invasion uh, successful. Now, other scholars would say different things, of course, um, but to me, those are the things that that man brought to the table. We know that there were some well-documented speeches that he made around this time uh, of the invasion of D-Day and the beaches of Normandy. Was he writing personally in his planner or other writings or letters um, back home uh, about what was the inner workings of this or what was happening or kind of what was on his conscience at that time? Most, uh, we need to remember that the planning was um, classified information. So he absolutely would not have written classified information into his personal um, um, planners or, or papers. Um, the thing that is really most indicative of his, his character is that he wrote a letter, um, he just jotted down a little note and stuffed it in his pocket. Um, and we call it the, the, in case of failure notice, we have it in our library. And it says, and I paraphrase poorly, that the soldiers, sailors, and airmen did everything that they could to prepare for this invasion. And if anything happens, if this is a failure, it is, and he writes, my fault alone. Um, so to me, he wrote this note that if, if, if this goes astray, if this is a failure, it is on my shoulders. And that is 
such the, the shoulders, what big shoulders that that man had to have that note in his pocket ready to go. Who do you think that note would have been intended for? The president of the United States. Wow. I mean, to quote another president, it's almost like a, a buck stops here <laughs> kind of moment. Like it's, I take all responsibility. Absolutely. That's exactly the same thing. Um, I, so we talked about D-Day a little bit, and obviously that's really reflected in this monument um, pretty significantly for, for obvious reasons. I wanted to ask about a couple of other things that uh, Eisenhower's credited for. And you mentioned the Department of Education uh, is near this monument. And, and I guess, especially with current events, he is, people are reflecting on his role in the desegregation of schools in Little Rock um, as well, and kind of give us the brief uh, history of his involvement in that, in that moment. Uh, so the, the Supreme Court decided that segregation uh, was illegal and unconstitutional and uh, that, that we as a nation needed to desegregate our schools. Um, the, the schools in Little Rock were not, um, at that moment, were not ready to, to follow the law. And um, Eisenhower was really a constitutionalist. He believed in the laws of this land and he believed that we needed to follow the laws of this land. And the law stated that, um, that the school should be open, open to all of the, the children of that place. Um, and when it was denied, um, Eisenhower leaned on the law and said, we have to, we have to, we have to desegregate, it's the law. Um, and so to um, encourage participation, um, he sent in federal troops to do, to do that. Um, there's a, there's a, what we have in our library are letters from children um, to President Eisenhower stating on both sides that the school should be desegregated or that the schools should remain segregated. Um, and so to read these letters from children um, stating their case um, really gives us the sense of what was going on in the American population at that time. I also want to ask about the interstate highway system. Uh, I, you, <laughs> we take that for granted these days. I-70 running straight through uh, the middle of Kansas. And, and tell me if I'm wrong here, but I believe that in I-70, the first bit of, of the interstate highway system was laid in Kansas. That's um, correct. And was that a coincidence that the <laughs> president's home state? Tell me about this. I think it was an, uh, to honor the president. Um, so the Eisenhower, when he was uh, in the army in 1918, as a matter of fact, they had this um, um, training project where they were trying to move troops across the country to see how they could do it. So if we needed troops in another part of the United States, how would we move our troops there? Um, and in 1918, it was not an easy task. Um, we have lots of photographs in our collection of breakdowns and mud pits and uh, uh, broken um, bridges, and it was not it was not an easy um, occurrence for them to do this. Uh, but Eisenhower learned a lot as a participant in this. And then during during um, between World War Two one and two, and then also in World War Two, Eisenhower experienced the German Autobahn. And these two events led him to recognize that we needed a better um, transportation system in the United States. 
So the interstate system remains the largest um, um, civil engineering program that we have uh, participated in. Wow. <laughs> and how it's changed the economy in America for generations following that. Well, and you know, it, it changed the way we live. It allowed people to move outside of the city limits and by you know, it's all interconnected, of course. The people had more money. They were able to buy houses. Houses were being built because all the soldiers were coming home. We had the interstate, which made us be able to move a little bit further away. It created the suburbs. It's just, it's a network. And yeah, I just love that you you have these documents right here in Kansas. And of course, you can't go see them right now because of the pandemic. But, uh, but one day, eventually, are you guys looking at when you might be able to reopen at some point in the future? Well, I'm going to start by saying the fact that the presidential documents and, and other documents are here in Kansas and available to researchers and scholars is really just such an American thing to me that, you know, if you need to come use this library, you give us a call, you make an appointment, and, and you can interact with the documents of your government. You can do this. And isn't that amazing? Isn't that wonderful? Um, so we do not have a reopening date. We are following the White House guidelines for phased reopening. And uh, we are working very diligently to create a plan that is safe, not only for our staff, but our guests, and also uh, the documents and the objects in our holdings. So, you know, if you utilize some of the items from our, from our holdings, we need to know what type of quarantine measures we need to put those documents into um, to take care of them for the next user, of course. Yeah. Has, with, with the creation and dedication of this memorial, have, have you seen anecdotally any sort of increased interest in Eisenhower as, as a figure? Absolutely. We, we've noticed an increase in, in um, interest over the past maybe five years. Uh, we've attributed it to both the memorial, because there's been more information about it in the recent past, uh, but also there was a, a, some classified documents that were released before I was here at the library. And once these classified documents were released, uh, we had more scholars coming in and taking a look at these documents as well. So it was sort of a tandem experience. Classified um, surrounding World War II? And the presidency as well. And just the general, generally around the presidency. Um, and then lastly, as, as I kind of let you go here, you said that Eisenhower knew that he was a historical figure. Did he talk or write or comment at all about how he wanted to be remembered in history? I think that those stories he kept for personal um, conversations, like with his family. I think that those sorts of stories are really important for the family to be able to hold on to and share. Um, so I don't have any. I would have to lean on the family for those. But I, but I love that they have these remembrances um, and these anecdotes that they share with us. Isn't that wonderful? When, when Susan mentioned that story about her grandfather, I just feel so connected to him when, when they tell them. Well, and that sort of makes sense when you talk about him being a student of history and letting the record speak for itself or letting people see what they think is significant in, in whatever he did. Well, that's true, because the scholars use the library and then tell us what happened, isn't it? 
<laughs> That's how it goes, yes. Well, this has been um, just a fun conversation to, to learn a little bit more about Eisenhower and reflect on his enormous contributions to our country. So, Don, thank you so much. Thanks for allowing me the time. I appreciate it. We thank you for listening. If you want to see pictures of this memorial, just check out the show notes and join us next time.